Morning, everyone. From me, um, awesome to be here. If I've never met you personally or those of you at home, um, lovely to meet you. My name is Debbie, also one of the pastors here. We've had a, a really awesome week, myself personally and, and a bunch of our leadership team. We've had um, a visitor up from Cape Town, a guy who works at an organization called The Warehouse, and he's been spending some time with our elders and our staff. Yesterday, a bunch of our leaders were here um, in, in the church with the other leaders from the other Westville churches um, speaking about racial reconciliation, and it's been a really, really great stretching, encouraging um, kind of week, so I'm, I'm feeling pumped. Um, and, and we land here in Acts this morning, which uh, is also stretching and encouraging. And so um, I'm excited for this morning's message. The, the other awesome thing was Craig, this guy, he spent um, some time staying in, in our home, Barry in my home. And, um, you know, when you're sitting around a table, you get to know people so well and not just on kind of a, a surface level. So we, we learned a lot about each other and found out that Craig has backpacked through South America. When he was younger, he spent about a year backpacking through South America. If you've known me for like more than a day, you'll know that I love South America. I lived there for a season of my life and um, yeah, Barry and I have traveled there as well. And so since then, I've actually been reminiscing a little bit about all the places that we visited, the beautiful spots, the fun adventures that we had. Um, and, and one of the places that I got stuck on is a, a beautiful little town in Chile that's called Pucon, the most beautiful spot. I mean, you can see it there. That is a volcano, active volcano that the, that the little town is built around. As you're walking through the town, you see all these like sirens and the, the signs that tell you like how, how high the lava is and all that sort of stuff. Um, but Barry and I climbed up that volcano. It was super fun. Always game for an adventure. We sometimes don't think it through really well. Um, so there we were, we were like, yeah, let's go climb it, awesome. Snow, we got given those snow boots, like ice picks, so there we are, we were like, okay, this is actually quite a serious thing, <laughs> we didn't think that. And then you got to zigzag your way up the mountain, it was a mission, it was awesome, but a mission. It took us about six hours to get up to the top, and there we were, it felt like we were standing on the top of the world, and also able to look into a volcano. How cool is that? See the lava down there, the one side you couldn't look in because of the sulfur that was coming up. Um, just absolutely incredible experience. They also, when they gave us the aspect, they also gave us this like, little plastic like, plate-looking thing. When we got to the top, they said, okay, put it onto your belt at the back, and then essentially you just pulled this paper plate, I mean, plastic plate under your bum, and then we slid the whole way down. So it took us six hours to get up and 45 minutes to get back down. It was amazing. And the only thing you had to make sure was not to, like when you're slowing yourself down with your ice pick, is not to like stab someone in the foot behind you. No pressure. They really shouldn't just give those things to novices. But anyway, what an amazing adventure. It was such a fun day. Um, I am always game for adventure. And while I've been preparing for this chapter in Acts, I've realized how much of an adventure being a part of the church is. If anyone ever says that church is boring, tell them to read the book of Acts because it is just adventure after adventure after adventure of following Jesus. And so these disciples had walked with Jesus and then in Acts chapter one, we read about the ascension where Jesus goes back to heaven. I mean, imagine that moment. And then in chapter two, we read about when the Holy Spirit comes on them. Imagine that moment. And so here are these group of people who are just working out how to be the church, this group of ordinary people who are living in the power of an extraordinary God. 
Then chapter three, Jacques preached last week around this miracle. Um, if you weren't here, this guy who has been lame for 40 years is healed. This absolute miracle. And there's Peter and John and they're just cruising along these ordinary guys on an ordinary day doing the ordinary thing. They would have normally gone to the temple and then this guy gets healed. And then, of course, because something happened, you know how people are, a crowd gathered. You know, nowadays we do the rubbernecking thing. I wonder what that was like in those days. And so Peter sees all these people and he tells them what's just happened and he starts to preach to them. Imagine if we had that outlook on life, how different our life would be. If every morning we woke up and said, yo, I'm an ordinary person going about my ordinary day. I wonder what our extraordinary God is gonna do through me today. In my place of work, at the shops, I wonder who I'm gonna meet. I wonder who God is gonna use me to touch today. I wonder how he's gonna show off through my life today. Wouldn't that be such an adventure of following Jesus? And that's what we see in the life of Peter and John as they are kind of going about this day. So there's more about this extraordinary God. We're in chapter four today. Before we dive into chapter four today, um, I just wanna remind us, we've called this series chapter 29. If you haven't been around, um, so Acts only actually has chapter 20, 28 chapters. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. But we've called it chapter 29 because as we've said before, this is the story of the church. The story of the church is not finished. In fact, we get to continue writing the story of the church right where we are in 2021. And so what is our story gonna be? What is God gonna do through us, through this church? And so what is the 29th chapter gonna look like? And we, we get to be one of those characters in the 29th chapter. Anyway, so one of the things that I'm gonna do as we're going through the sermon is I'm just gonna put up some questions ask us some questions that come out of chapter four. We see what's going on in chapter four and how can we translate those same things into how we live today? So I'm gonna call those chapter 29 questions and there's gonna be quite a bunch of them. I just wanna invite you to ask God's spirit to speak to you today through those questions. What is your part in the story gonna be? So chapter four actually launches us into another period of the history of the church. So up until this point, we've seen the birth of the church, and now we start to see the persecution of the church. So this is the first time that it's recorded since Jesus left that the church walks into a space of persecution. Um, and the, this miracle that happened and then the preaching that follows and, and as we go along, the establishment doesn't like this. You know, it's funny that preaching of God's word has always invited persecution. Um, but what Peter and John don't know today is that for the next 300 years, the church is gonna face some of the most intense and hectic persecution that has ever been recorded. It's it's hardcore. Some historians, they say that you can actually follow about 10 waves of persecution over a period of about 300 years. And it starts soon after what we're reading here today. This is kind of the entrance. And by persecution, I don't mean like people laughing at you because you say you're a Christian or like mocking you because you've got Christian music on your playlist. You know, not that kind of persecution. We do face persecution today, but I'm speaking here about physical persecution. Early church were beaten and they were flogged and they were whipped, beheaded. Um, there's stories of disgusting torture. 
given wax shirts and used as torches to light the, the Roman gardens. And these Christians would die in the flames and things that are even worse. And I just want to remind us in this moment that there is still a steady stream of persecution in the church today. Not in our spaces, but across the world, you will still be killed for being a Christian. We've got missionaries that have been sent from our church into closed countries where they've chosen to minister, but they could be killed for being Christians. We need to remind ourselves of that. What we face in our context, I think is more persecution of our egos. Hey, it's a bit, of a, a, a bit of a thing and it's real. Persecution is real. You get mocked or ridiculed um, or sidelined. You might lose friends, uh, perhaps even lose your job or your status. Um, but it does pale in comparison to what we see in parts of the world today and what we saw in the early church. And so we're going to jump in right there. Acts chapter 4, this guy has been healed and Peter is preaching to these people. Verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Greatly disturbed. So what disturbed means here, it's kind of like pained. They were like deeply perturbed or very annoyed, you know? They were highly annoyed. Why were they annoyed? The rest of the verse says, because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the people who were greatly annoyed here were the Sadducees. We read about them in the Gospels, but they're not like the main characters. The main characters, the main enemy of Jesus were the Pharisees. And they really did not like what Jesus was doing. But that's kind of shifted. The greatest kind of enemy of the early church are the Sadducees. And the, the reason for that is that the Sadducees were the ruling class of aristocratic Jews. And essentially, they controlled everything that happened in the temple courts. So this included the high priesthood. So they wanted to stay on the side of Rome. They wanted to kind of appease Rome politically. They, they aligned themselves with the Roman government because Rome gave them favor. And Rome could appoint a high priest and could depose a high priest. And so they wanted to stay in good books with Rome. They also didn't want to upset the status quo. They wanted to just kind of keep the peace because of that whole factor. Theologically, they were like the liberals of the day. So the Pharisees believed scripture, every part of scripture, and they followed it very legalistically. Um, they believed in angels, they believed in the resurrection, they believed in the spirit world, they believed in all of scripture. But the Sadducees didn't. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in miracles. So no miracles, no afterlife, no resurrection. They essentially saw no hope in life after death at all. And that is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> love it, love it. And so... The Sadducees become the foremost enemy of the early church because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This was not what they believed. And while they were doing it, they were upsetting the status quo. It's quite a ruckus going on in the temple around this healing. So the Sadducees take the lead in being greatly disturbed. It's funny, the gospel seems to do this to people, hey? to greatly disturb people because the, the gospel disturbs the status quo. When you say something like faith comes through Christ and Christ alone, it disturbs the status quo 
because it's very different to the narrative of our day. It kind of, you know, there's lots of ways to find God and just whatever works for you and find your own path and all roads lead to Rome. Very different narrative. And so it upsets, it upsets the status quo. It disturbs people. You know, Paul writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Interesting phrase, eh? And so the question is if you are not suffering any persecution for your faith, even persecution of the ego, do you need to start asking yourself why? So our first chapter 29 question for this morning is does your faith ever disturb anyone? Does your faith ever disturb anyone? They seized Peter and John, verse 3. Because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. Many who heard the message believed. You see, they had their enemies, but many believed. How cool is that? Every time we speak about Jesus... We may have our enemies, we may have people who are greatly disturbed by what we are saying or who ignore us or ridicule us or mock us or laugh at us or say you're ridiculous or whatever. But some will believe. And isn't that enough reason to speak for the some? Sometimes, I think oftentimes, we are so concerned by the people who may be greatly disturbed that we'd rather just not say anything. We don't want to upset the status quo. But what does that, where does that leave the some who might believe? It leaves them in the dark, right? And so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So when they say many believed, we're probably talking around 2,000 people, I'm not sure, but we were sitting on 3,000. The church was 3,000. 3,000 were added to their number after Peter preached a little while ago, two chapters back. And now about 5,000 men are recorded. And that's excluding children and women. So here we have this growing group of disciples. I'm so glad that somebody kept, kept count back in the day. You know, someone was clearly counting. I wonder if they were like counting literally or just like a rough amount, you know. But I'm glad that they were counting because it, it allows us to rejoice with them. We can see what's going on here. We can see all these people who are being added, who are believing in Jesus, and it allows us to celebrate. But here we see this growing group of disciples. Chapter 29 question, are we a growing group of disciples? Growing in number? Growing in our following of Jesus? Are we a growing group of disciples? We'll jump in again at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. I want you to notice who's there. This has been a massive revelation for me. It's beautiful when you dive into verse by verse, word by word. Look at this list of people. So Annas is the former high priest. Caiaphas is the residing high priest. And then the elders, the teachers of the law, they mention a few other people. Essentially, Peter and John 
are standing before largely the same group of people that Jesus stood before when he was tried. If you go back and you look, Caiaphas was there, Annas was there, the, the, the elders, the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin. How ironic is this? Do you remember where Peter was when Jesus was tried? He was outside in the temple courts warming himself by the fire. You remember that? And now he's inside standing face to face with the very same people who tried Jesus. I can't help but think in that moment that Peter and John were very aware of what Jesus' fate had been. You know, Peter was outside before, didn't really know what was happening inside, but he saw Jesus being taken to the cross. And here he is standing in front of the same group of people. Can you imagine that moment? They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, let's just pause there, Peter. Okay, so remember that night when Jesus was on trial. We said he was outside in the temple courts warming himself by the fire. Remember that. What was he also doing? Denying Jesus. Denying that he even knew Jesus to a servant girl. This is a different man. Here, Peter is now, he's inside. He's on fire. He's not denying Jesus anymore. He's proclaiming Jesus. He is a different person. Why is he different? Well, he's seen his resurrected Lord. He's been restored. He's been sent. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He is a different person. And here he stands in front of this group of people, and he is about to give them a speech. Peter launches right in. He doesn't hold back at all. And listen to this. If we jump back to Luke chapter 12, this was something that Jesus had said to the disciples. He said, and when you are brought to trial in the synagogues, before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. How cool is that, hey? When you're brought before the rulers and authorities, when you are, so Jesus was preparing them. I wonder if these words were ringing through Peter and John's ears as they were being led towards the rulers and authorities. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. And that's exactly what happened. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you now. So number one, he's saying, number one, how ridiculous is this trial? If you're bringing us to trial because of an act of kindness. But secondly, if you want to know whose name we did this in, I'll tell you. It was the name of Jesus. You remember Jesus. He stood right here and you crucified him. If you are vaguely conflict averse, I think you're cringing in your seats right now, hey? How bold is this guy? But not only that whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So now you know. You wanted to know whose name we did it? Now you know. 
And the Sadducees have a big problem. Number one, because they believe that Jesus is dead, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They also don't believe in miracles, but here is a miracle standing right in front of them. This guy who couldn't walk, and now he's standing in front of them. What are they to do? It's a little bit of a deja vu. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, essentially the same thing happened. It says in Scripture, in John chapter 11, he says, when, when the Jews had come to visit Mary, they saw what Jesus had done. They believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Same thing. Some believed. And then the leaders gathered because they did not know what to do. They were saying, like, what shall we do with what's just happened? That would have been the moment to believe in Jesus. Someone had just been raised from the dead. Fast forward, someone is just a lame guy who's been lame for 40 years, has just been able to walk. You know, unbelief goes deep, eh? Unbelief goes deep. And you know what? The best argument or the best advert for the validity of the gospel, the best argument or the best advert for the power of Jesus is a changed life. Some may still choose to not believe, but that is the best thing. Lazarus was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. This guy, he's physically standing in front of them. He was not able to walk, and now he can. A changed life. And here's the question, chapter 29 question. Is your life an advert for the gospel? Is your life an advert for the gospel? Do people see what Jesus has done in your life, how different you are? This guy was an advert for the gospel. This man is standing here, and the Sadducees have a problem. Peter carries on. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He's quoting Psalm 118, which is one of 16 messianic psalms. Essentially, a messianic psalm is a psalm that speaks about the person and the work of Jesus. And by quoting this psalm, Peter again is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. You missed it. Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I love this next verse, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. How cool, eh? Anyone, anyone here also feel a little bit like I do, like an unschooled, ordinary person? Hey? What difference am I going to make? I don't know, you know, whatever you're thinking. Whatever proviso you put on that God can't use you. Love this verse. They saw, they perceived, and they realized. They saw this courage and this boldness. And you might think, you know what? Wasn't Peter just courageous by nature? Now, I think he was irrational by nature. You know, he's cut off that soldier's ear with a sword. 
But was that bold? Or was he just impulsive? I think we can see when he denied Jesus the timidity that lived inside him. And yet now they see this boldness, this courage, and they realized that they were uneducated. Not that they were stupid, but just that they hadn't been schooled in the school of rabbis. They hadn't gone through the formal training. And yet, here are these two men who haven't been formally trained, and they're unpacking these messianic psalms and interpreting them correctly. And they were pretty impressed. And then they took notes. The conclusion they came to was that... The reason for this was that they had been with Jesus. You see, it's that relationship. There's many people who know the word of God. And then there are people who know the God of the word. And obviously we're aiming for both. But that relationship, that being with Jesus is what changes us and transforms us can see that relationship. Chapter 29 question. Have you been with Jesus? Do people know that you have been with Jesus? Verse 15. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we gonna do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So their plan is just to tell them not to speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. These guys were properly at a loss. They didn't know what to do. There's something so powerful about the name of Jesus, hey? It requires a response. It might be a response that's negative, but there will be a response. If you've ever thrown out the name of Jesus as a person that you love and know in a, in a, in a room, see what the responses are, the heads that turn. So that's the idea. Let's just get them to not speak in this name. And so they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I don't think that's the answer that the Sanhedrin was hoping for. I think they were hoping more for like, yes sir, thank you for letting us go, we're we're out, we promise we won't do that. What is the highest priority for these two apostles? It's to do what is right in the eyes of God. That's the highest priority. And what's right in this case is not what you say we should do, is kind of what they're saying to them. And let me say this, that I think if there was a way to obey the authorities and God, they would have chosen that path. Peter, even in in his letter, he writes in uh, 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So if there was a way to obey both, do that. But when one collides with another, obey God. And so another chapter 29 question. Is obeying God your highest priority? Is obeying God your highest priority? Because here these guys choose not to do what's popular or safe or easy 
but to do what is obeying God. As for the disciples, they say, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's that simple. That's the definition of being a witness, hey? But somehow when we, when we understand, like sitting, I don't know, in a courtroom and you have to be a witness for something or a witness for a car accident, we understand that. We just have to speak about what we saw and what we heard. But when we're speaking about being a witness for Jesus, often something weird happens in us. All of a sudden there's this pressure when actually we just are speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Tell them your story. How have you been with Jesus? What have you heard him say? What have you seen him do? That's what it means to be a witness. Speak about what you have seen and heard. It's hard to do if you haven't been with Jesus, if you haven't heard anything or you haven't seen anything. But another chapter 29 question. Have you seen and heard and will you speak? Have you seen and heard, and will you speak? It's beautiful what these disciples say. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We just can't. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So they let them go. So this man who had been healed had been lame for 40 years. And last week, Jacques spoke to us about the beautiful gate, which was where this man sat. If he had been sitting there for over 40 or for 40-ish years, this would have meant that Jesus walked past him many times. Think about that. Jesus walked past him many times and didn't heal him. You know, Jesus didn't heal everybody. And now we know the rest of the story, so we can see the wisdom of God's timing. We can see that this healing now brought maximum glory to God. It brought a shift in society. This is where all the leaders would hear and would see. But I often wonder if that guy felt overlooked hey, there he was sitting. He probably would have heard the stories about Jesus. He probably would have heard about other people that had been healed. I wonder if he thought, oh, why not me? You know, why not me? Maybe he thought that. There's many of us sitting here today who might be thinking a similar thing. You know, Jesus, why haven't you seen me? Why haven't you helped or healed me? Why haven't you heard my cry? Why haven't you found me a job? Feels like you're just walking past. And if anyone here feels like that today, and I'm never gonna try and tell someone how to feel because how you feel is valid. But maybe there's a lesson that we can learn today. Maybe we can learn the lesson that God's plan is good, that he has a plan, and it's good. It might just not be now. Maybe we can step into a space of, of trusting that God's plan is better than my own. It's for his glory. 
but it's in his timing. And so another chapter 29 question, will you trust God's timing? Will you trust God? Will you trust that he has seen you? He knows you, he loves you, but trust the timing of his plan. It's hard. But perhaps that's a lesson we can take out of chapter four. On their release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Notice the spiritual instinct of Peter and John. They get out, they get released, they've been threatened severely, and they they experience this intense trial, but their immediate go-to is to gather with the other believers and to speak to God. That's their immediate go-to. They didn't run away, they didn't write a strongly worded letter to the Jerusalem Times, you know. They didn't decide to protest, they decided to pray. This was their natural instinct, to get together and to talk to God in prayer. Chapter 29 question, what is your instinct in trial? What is your spiritual instinct? Is it spiritual? This beautiful prayer, we get to eavesdrop on it because it's recorded. What they said is recorded here in Acts and we get to learn from this prayer. They start praying, they say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Often in in scripture, we see people praying, starting with this adoration. Wonder why they did that. I think if I had been there, I would have been like, thank you, God, you know, this complete adoration. We've just been set free. We were like, that was hectic. I also might have been like, help, that was hardcore. They're still coming after me, you know. Why do you think they start praying like that? This is something we can learn. It's reminding ourselves who we're talking to. And sometimes, I mean, God doesn't need an ego boost. He doesn't need for us to tell him that. He loves it when we do because we're adoring him, speaking about his character. But it strengthens our faith as well. It's a chance to remind ourselves, who are we speaking to? Lord, they say, sovereign Lord. And Lord means you are God. Normally they use the Greek word karios, which means you are God. Interesting, in this space, they use a word that is very rarely used in the New Testament. They use the word despotes, which is the word that despot, I mean, the despot comes from that word. And a despot is a ruler or other person who holds absolute power, like a dictator, an an autocratic absolute ruler. Nobody has a vote. He has the final say of everything. And they call God that. You are the absolute ruler. All these other people that we've been speaking to, sometimes they want us to call them Lord. No. Sovereign, absolute ruler. The autocrat of the universe. What a perspective. Hey? When you've got that perspective about who you're speaking to, Anything that you bring before him is, he's way bigger than that, hey? It it raises your faith 
And so when we pray, we can pray like that. Remember who we come before and allow that to enhance our faith. Then they quote Psalm 2 in this, in this prayer that they're praying, which is another thing that we can do to pray scripture. It's an, another kind of tip. Anyway, and they pray all the way through. I'm not going to read the whole prayer right now, but if we jump into verse 29, this is how they end the prayer. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What got them in trouble in the first place? Let's remember that. Speaking with boldness and performing signs and wonders, and they're praying for the same thing. They're praying for more of the same because their faith has overcome their fear. They know who they're talking to. They know who they're living for. They know who's called them. So let's do more of that, God. Give us more boldness. Let's see you do more signs and wonders. Let's see more people reached and believing in Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I don't know what shook it. I'm not going to even try and guess. But it's this beautiful physical sign again to just boost their faith. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Final chapter 29 questions for today. Have you met the Holy Spirit? Do you speak the word of God boldly? So this is not actually the end of chapter four. Um, there's six more verses that speaks a little bit more about this beautiful togetherness. Um, and then that rolls straight into chapter five. And so I'm gonna leave that for next week's preacher. Um, they're gonna speak a little bit more about that. What a jam-packed chapter, hey? And I think the thing is we can just read it like a story or we can say, how can this impact our story? What can we learn from this early church? How can we be impacted and live out some of these same beautiful principles? So I want us to spend just one more minute looking at those chapter 29 questions again. Allow God's spirit to speak into your heart. Maybe there'll be one that just sits with you more than the rest. Where you're like, oh, I didn't like my answer to that question. And allow God to process that in your heart over this next week. But let's just take a moment now. Does your faith ever disturb anyone? Are we a growing group of disciples? Is your life an advert for the gospel? Have you been with Jesus? Is obeying God your highest priority? Have you seen and heard? Will you speak? Will you trust in God's timing? What is your spiritual instinct in trial? 
Have you met the Holy Spirit? And do you speak the word of God boldly? God, I want to thank you so much for the story of the church. What a great idea. Thank you that we get to be a part of your church here where we are in 2021. And God, I pray that you would grow us to be disciples of you on an adventure with you, this extraordinary God who uses ordinary unschooled people. But thank you for this invitation to walk with you. Thank you for putting a group of people together to impact the world around them. And God, I pray that you would use us as a group of people who would impact the world around us. And so Lord, as we go today, as we walk out into our ordinary lives, we know that you go with us and we pray that you would empower us, that we would be listening and in tune to your spirit, that we would be willing to be used by you wherever we go that you would give us boldness. And so we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful adventure that we are on with you. Amen. Amen. God bless everyone. Have an awesome week. Walk the adventure with Jesus. You're invited. <laughs> Cheers. We'll see you next time.